Now we have the great privilege of turning to the Word of the Lord. We'll be reading this morning from 2 Kings chapter 13. We're bouncing back. We've been in the southern kingdom for some time. Now we're bouncing back to the northern kingdom and looking at the reign of two kings, Jehoahaz and Jehoash, kings of Israel. Before we read this text, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love your word. We love it not for ink on a page. We love it because it is life, and you speak through it to us. And so we pray that from what is in some ways an an obscure text to us, from an ancient set of kings in a country far away, we pray that you would speak to us here and now in a way that is powerful and that brings life, as you are the God of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 13. In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and for a long time he kept them under the power of Hazael, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. Then Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. The Lord provided a deliverer for Israel, and they escaped from the power of Aram. So the Israelites lived in their own homes as they had before, but they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. They continued in them. Also the Asherah pole remained standing in Samaria. Nothing had been left of the army of Jehoahaz except fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand foot soldiers. For the king of Aram had destroyed the rest and made them like the dust at threshing time. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoahaz, all he did and his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoahaz rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Jehoash, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 37th year of Joash, son of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoash, all he did in his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his fathers, and Jeroboam succeeded him on the throne. Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. 
The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it, but now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Hazael, king of Aram, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, succeeded him as king. Then Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoahaz. Three times Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. Sometimes I think it's easy to get lost in the international politics of the day, and the international politics of the ancient world. We have foreign countries, and we're not familiar with them. We're not particularly familiar with the geography of the area, especially not as it was in the 7th, 8th, or 9th century B.C. So I thought it would probably be helpful for us to have a, a bit of a refresher and maybe a, a better way to understand it. And so we might think of the ancient Near East in the time of Israel and Judah as something like a neighborhood. And you have living in one home, you have Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, and they're like twin boys. But they don't get along very well. They don't particularly like each other. Sometimes they get along, but generally they have very little interest in each other. And so they live in one home, and next door to them lives a, a little bit older, a little bit larger boy. If they're third graders, maybe, then he's a fifth grader, and his name is Aram, or Syria. And Aram is a bit of a bully. He likes to come over and he likes to pick on Israel. He steals his lunch money, he kicks his dog, he breaks his toys. He just likes to be a general pest. He'd very much like to be done with Israel. But Aram has a problem because on the other side of him lives a thug. And if we say that Israel and Judah are like third graders and Aram is like a fifth grader, then Assyria is like a roid-raged, big, mean high school senior who's the Division I state champion wrestler who likes to destroy everything and anything around him and crush everyone and anyone around him. And the, the issue with Aram is that he is stuck between Assyria and Israel and Judah. And as long as Assyria is around, he's not allowed to pester Israel. But now, as we come into our text, behind the story is a reality that Assyria is having family problems. And so he's not free to go out and bother Israel. Assyria is engaged in all kinds of internal rebellions and revolts, and so he's busy at home, which then as we move into the first three verses of our passage, leaves the Arameans free to be a big pest and to invade Israel. And as we move into these first three verses, we see what seems to be just kind of a, a same old, same old situation. You have another king, and this king's name begins with J, just like most of the rest of the kings. I got a very good email this last week, or, or maybe a couple weeks ago, and the email was, why do all the king's names start with J? It's very confusing. 
Jehoash and Joash and Jehu and Jehoahaz. You have all these different, all these different J names. And, and the reason is because the Lord's name in Hebrew begins with what we would say the letter J is. So all these names mean the Lord does something, like Joshua, the Lord saves. Anyways, so here you have another king, Jehoahaz, who becomes king. And it, it just has the same kind of formula that we always have when a new king comes. He was the son of Jehu. He reigned for 16 years, and then he died. But we would, we would be missing a subtle marker of God's goodness if we, just, if we just blew past this introduction without taking note of it. And what we would realize is that very significantly, if you go back to chapter 10, if you were with us, and or if you're familiar with the book of Kings, you would read that the Lord had made a promise to Jehu, Jehoahaz's father. And the Lord had promised Jehu that he would have offspring to sit on his throne down to the fourth generation. And so when we read that Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king in Israel, it's another reminder that God is not only able to keep his promises, but he is eager to keep his promises. And so Jehoahaz becomes king, and Jehoahaz is like his father Jehu, he's an idolater. Now he's not as bad as Ahab had been, but he still follows Jeroboam and worships the false gods and that sort of thing. And so the Lord is upset with him and with Israel. And because the Lord is upset with him and with Israel, he keeps him oppressed. And the Israelites are oppressed by the Arameans throughout the time of his reign. And then things get desperate. And then we see something that's very unusual for a wicked king. What we see is that he turns to the Lord. When he's, being oppressed by, when he's being oppressed by the Arameans, he turns to the Lord, and he cries out to the Lord for help. And this is something that almost never happens in the northern kingdom, and even sometimes rarely happens in the southern kingdom. And he cries out to the Lord for help, and you wonder why he waited so long. Any, any Israelite king worth his salt would have heard of what the Lord had done through Moses and David and Elijah and e, Elijah and even now Elisha. You, you wonder why it took him so long, but he, he cries out to the Lord for help, and the Lord hears. But we see why the Lord hears. The Lord hears, it says, because he sees. The Lord sees their misery. He sees their oppression. And so he hears and he delivers them. This is precisely how the Lord has worked in the past as well. If you go back to the Exodus, the Lord meets with Moses in the burning bush, and this was after the Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years. They're afflicted, they're oppressed, they're enslaved, and they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord speaks to Moses out of the bush in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, and says, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. He hears, and he sees, and he delivers. And the same pattern repeats itself in the book of the Judges as well. The, there's a pattern of sin, the Israelites sin, they commit idolatry, and then there's a, a foreign oppression, there's enemies, and there's danger, and there's death. And then they cry out to the Lord, the Lord hears their cries, and the Lord delivers them. So you have a, a similar pattern coming again and again and again within the Scriptures, and this reminds us of another subtle point that we would, we would be deprived if we missed. But the same God who was God in Moses' day, 
And the same God who was God in the judges is still God in the day of Jehoahaz. And if God was God in Moses' day, and if he was God in the judges' day, and if he was God in Jehoahaz's day, then he's still God today. God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and off into eternity. And so the Lord delivers Jehoahaz, and he delivers Israel. And then you would think, as we move into the next few verses, we move into verse 6, you would think that after being delivered, Jehoahaz would very quickly and very eagerly turn to the Lord. He should have seen all the futility of these idols, all the weaknesses, all their inability to save, and you'd think he'd turn to the Lord with a vigor now, but you would be wrong. Instead, as you come to verse 6, it says this, but they that being the Israelites under the leadership of their king, but they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. Jehoahaz gets everything he has asked for, and he still turns back to his idols. What a fool. Isn't he a fool? You, you think, what was he thinking? But then maybe on a second thought, you think perhaps... He's not so different from me as I would like to think. We might see ourselves in Jehoahaz in a couple of different ways. The first of which is, which of us is not familiar with the cycle to some degree of realizing that our sin has made us miserable and turning to the Lord in a sense of devotion, receiving peace, receiving a renewed joy, and then somehow in some time falling back into the same idolatry which we had come out of. And then realizing again it's misery. We're prone to go back, as the song says, we're prone to leave the God we love. But then as well, nor willing we won't be able to relate with this, we see that Jehoahaz turns to the Lord not out of conviction, but out of desperation. He turns to the Lord, as we see when we hop down to verse 7, he turns to the Lord when there's nowhere else to turn. He has ten chariots. Ten. He has fifty horsemen and only ten thousand foot soldiers to fight off an entire nation that has an undivided focus on destroying him. His own army has been decimated, to say the least. He has nowhere else to turn. And so then he turns to the Lord. When there's, when there's nowhere else to go, when there's no other hope, then he turns to the Lord. You see, he doesn't turn out of conviction. He doesn't turn out of repentance. He turns out of desperation. And desperation is not the same as repentance and faith. You might, you might consider it to be like this. You're on an airplane. Maybe this is a bad example since I'll be on an airplane tonight. But you're on an airplane, and the airplane starts to shudder, and it starts to fall apart, and you begin to see little parts of the wing fly off. And the unbeliever says, Oh God, save us! Was he or she converted? Probably not. He or she was probably desperate. There's no one else to save. There's no one else who can come to the rescue. He or she's only hope is that there is a God out there who's going to listen and save. Desperation is not the same as conversion. And we should take note of this. Because we too can get desperate. Jehoahaz had nowhere else to turn except to the Lord. Isn't that the same for us? We might think of it this way. I don't want to go to hell. And I know that only God can save me. So I will turn to him. 
And that's good, right? It's good and reasonable not to want to go to hell. It's good and reasonable not to want your nation to be destroyed. It's good and reasonable not to want your aircraft to disintegrate in the air while you're in it. Those things are all good and reasonable, but that is not enough. True faith does not love God only for what He can give you. True faith loves God for who He is. True faith loves God because He is good, wise, glorious, powerful, majestic, and holy. True faith loves God, not just what He has to offer. If we love God only for what He can do for us, then we don't really love God. And so Jehoahaz proves Jehoahaz proves that his, his moment of desperation is just that. It's only desperation. It's not faith. As soon as the danger is gone, so is the desire for God. It would be wise for us to consider if that would be the same in our own hearts. If we merely use God as a crutch, not as the Lord. But then you move into the next couple of verses, verses 8 and 9, and you... Observe that this Jehoahaz is just like the rest of the kings. He dies, he's buried, and his son Jehoash becomes king. And then Jehoash is introduced in verses 10 to 13, and we hear almost nothing about him. He reigns for, he reigns for 16 or 17 years, as you count it. He, he reigns for that many of years, and he gets four verses. That's rather efficient. 16 years and four verses. You get the sense that the author doesn't care about Jehoash. He doesn't like Jehoash. Have you ever been in a conversation and you get the distinct sense that the person you're talking with would like nothing more than to stop talking with you? That he or she is disinterested or perhaps even dislikes you? Well, that's the sense we get here when we come to Jehoash. We get the sense the author doesn't like and isn't entirely interested in Jehoash. And so he just gets four verses, but then we see the author loves Elisha. He's going to take one final opportunity to talk about Elisha and the greatness of the Lord's prophet. So let's look at that with him as we read again from verses 14 to 19. Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. Elisha declared, you will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground, and he struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have destroyed Aram. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. When we get back to Elisha, we find him sick, and we're told that this is the sickness from which he's going to die. And we might be disappointed. After all, we probably had higher hopes for Elisha. Elijah had been swept into heaven by 
by a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen of fire. And, and so we come and we, Elisha's just going to die of a disease like any ordinary person. And we'll see that he too is extraordinary even in death. But anyways, this, this new king Jehoahaz comes to him because he hears that Elisha is going to die. And he comes to him and he says, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And those are the exact words that Elijah had said, or that Elisha had said to Elijah when Elijah was going to leave. And Elisha had been terrified of what was going to happen to him and to his country when Elijah was out of the picture. It was Elijah who had saved Israel. It was Elijah who had saved the prophets. It was Elijah who had defeated the prophets of Baal. What now is going to happen that Elijah is gone? And now Jehoahaz has the same feeling. Elisha has protected the people of Israel. Now what will happen to him? What will happen to Israel when Elisha is gone? So now Elisha is going to give Jehoahaz some hope. He we see kind of an uncomfortable situation where he tells the king to get a bow and some arrows. He gets the bow and some arrows. He says, take the bow and the arrows. And he puts his hand on him. And then he says, shoot. And he shoots. And he says, Lord's victory over Aram. I'm going to die. But you are still going to have power. And it's going to come from the Lord. And do you see that? Do you see whose victory it is? Right? Jehoash is going to fight the battle. Elisha predicts its outcome, but it is the Lord who wins the battle. But then we come into this rather uncomfortable situation. And the prophet says to the king, take some arrows. And again, the king obediently takes the arrows and he says, strike the ground. Now, shooting arrows is one thing, but we don't usually take arrows and smack them into the ground, especially if you're the king. But the king, desperate as he was, takes the arrows and that you can imagine somewhat timidly or self-consciously takes him and he strikes the ground three times. And you notice a pattern of obedience in the king. He's told to get a bow, he gets a bow. He's told to get some arrows, he gets some arrows. He's told to take it, he takes it. He's told to shoot it, he shoots it. He's told to take the arrows, he takes the arrows. He's told to strike the ground, he strikes the ground. But then we read he only strikes the ground three times and the prophet is angry. Why? He did what he was told prophet is angry because he didn't do it with a heart. He didn't do it with enthusiasm. The prophet says, you should have struck the ground five or six times, not three. If you'd have struck the ground five or six times, you would have completely destroyed your enemies, but now you will have a limited victory. And in some ways, we can relate with the king, can't we? I mean, it would be kind of an awkward thing. You've got this dying sick guy in front of you. He says to take some arrows and hit the ground. And after all, you are a king. You're not even used to picking up your own food. It's, it's all done for you. And so he says to take some arrows. And so you hit the ground. It makes some sense. But you've got to remember as well that this is a desperate king. This is, a desperate, this is a king who came looking for hope. This is a king who came because he has nowhere else to turn, just like his father. And the first arrow gets shot. I can't extend my arm all the way to do a full bow shot. The first arrow gets shot, and he says, the Lord's victory. Now you would think that if an arrow means victory, you would take him, and you would whack the ground until the prophet was embarrassed. But that's not how it works. He doesn't have enthusiasm in the promise of God. He only has a sense of desperation. 
does not have a love for God. Jehoash's obedience was half-hearted, lukewarm. And though he had obeyed every instruction, he didn't do it with the heart and with an enthusiasm. Ralph Davis said it this way, the promise of God did not stir Jehoash enough. So it would be reasonable for us to ask ourselves whether the promise of God stirs us enough. The promises of God are, are plentiful. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, perhaps the most precious of the promises that God makes to us. But there are other promises as well that we should embrace with enthusiasm and claim with boldness. The Lord writes through the, through the Apostle James in James 1, verses 5 to 8 about wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, there's an epidemic of foolishness in our day. Do you, do you pray wholeheartedly for the wisdom that God promises you will receive? Or you might think as well about worry and anxiety. God promises peace to those who pray for it in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do, do you follow this enthusiastically? Now, now, of all people who should follow this, it should be us. We're good, reformed Presbyterians. We know and we love the sovereignty and the providence of God. We believe that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. That's in, our, that's in our confessions. We believe in all that. And if we worry, what do we do? We say, I don't really believe it. I can preach to myself on this one. We don't really believe it. Because worrying is saying that things are out of God's control. And so instead of worrying, the Scripture commands us to pray for peace, to cast our cares on the Lord, and that we will receive that peace. But the question is whether the promises of God stir us to faith, or whether we are, perhaps like Jehoash and like the person described in James, whether we are double-minded and half-hearted and lukewarm in our desire to obey what God commands, even when greatness is offered to us as it was offered to Jehoash. Then we come to one of my favorite stories, favorite little stories in all the Bible, mysterious story as we come into verses 20 and 21. We read this, Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. 
So Elisha dies, and he's buried, and he's been dead for some time. He's dead long enough that all that's left of his bones. And then you have these two no-name guys. You don't know who they are, and they have a dead friend, and they're not really important, otherwise we'd have their names. And so they're about to bury their buddy, but then they see these well-armed bandits off in the way, and these guys are prone to kill whoever they find. And so they get scared, and they chuck their dead friend's body into the grave. It just so happens to be Elisha's grave. He, he slams into Elisha's bones, comes to, pops up. Alive. Now what do you make of this? All right, it seems like a misplaced story, doesn't it? You got king, you got a king, you got battles, you got prophet. All of a sudden, the prophet's dead, and dead guys are popping out of graves. Right? You'd almost think like the author kind of forgot to put the story back a little wise, and so he just thought, well, I better sneak it in here. He sneaks it in, and then he goes back to the king. What, what is the story doing here? What, what's the point of it? In fact, what's the point of the whole passage? Because you come back to the end and it's Jehoahaz again. So the whole passage goes together. The whole chapter goes together. There's all kinds of points, right? Being stirred by the promise of God, the futility of idolatry. But I think the big point of it all is that only God can be trusted to give victory over enemies. Including and especially over death. And isn't that what hangs over the whole passage? Death. Jehoahaz comes to Elisha, why? Because it comes to the Lord, why? Because his army is dead. And he's afraid of dying. He's afraid his country is going to die. And the Lord saves them from death. And then he does die. And then his son becomes king. And then his son dies. And then you have a dead man with friends who are afraid they're going to die. And so they chuck their dead friend into a grave full of another dead guy. There's death all over the passage, isn't there? But death doesn't have the final word in the, in the passage, does it? Life has the final word in the passage because the dead guy goes into the grave dead and he comes out alive. Remind you of somebody, doesn't it? Life has the final word in the passage because the Lord spares Jehoahaz from death. He spares Israel from death. He spares Jehoash from death. He brings the dead man back to life. Now, nobody else could do these things. Jehoahaz couldn't save himself or his country. Jehoash couldn't save himself or his country. And the dead guy's friend certainly couldn't bring their dead friend back to life. And that's the whole point. Go back to these most fascinating of stories. You, you see the dead guy tossed into the grave. You think, what's the point of it all? But then you think, well, what were we just looking at? We were just looking at how the king of Israel had come crying and in desperation to the prophet as the prophet's about to die, saying, my father, my father, the horsemen and chariots of Israel. In other words, when you die, who is going to save us? We're toast. And what does the author show us here? What does the author show us? He shows us that it wasn't Elisha who gave them life in the first place. Elisha couldn't even save himself from dying. It wasn't Elisha who saved Israel. It wasn't Elisha who was the horsemen and the chariots of Israel. It was the Lord who saved Israel. And it was the Lord who was the horsemen and the chariots of Israel. 
And it doesn't matter if Moses dies, and it doesn't matter if David dies, and it doesn't matter if Elijah goes off into heaven in the whirlwind, and it doesn't matter if Elisha dies, because those men were just instruments. It's God who gives life and salvation to his people. Isn't that the lesson of the gospel as well? It's God who gives life to his people and gives victory over the grave. And how does he do it? He does it through the death of a prophet. But not just a prophet, the prophet. Last week we looked at Jesus as the priest. This week he's the prophet. And he dies and he's put into a grave. But he does not stay there. But the grave which contained death then spews forth life. We come to a strikingly similar story as we come into the, the time of the death of Jesus and we look at Matthew 27. Matthew 27, we start in verse 50. It comes right to the end of Jesus on the cross. He's about to give up his spirit. We read this. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. A great prophet dies and is buried, and other men come out of their graves who had been dead alive. I think we're meant to understand the similarity between the two stories that in both events, God is giving life. And the, God, and the God who saved the Israelites in Egypt, and the God of, of Samson and Jephthah and all the judges, and the God who raised the dead man whose bones made contact with Elisha's, that same God, the God who raised the Lord Jesus from the grave, is still God today. And as he gave life the final word then, so too life has the final word now. We hop to the very end of the Scriptures, to Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, and we read exactly this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. For a church that's buried four people in the last couple months, it's particularly fitting to read what we read. Death will be no more. Life. Life. Life has the final word for those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Elisha is still dead and buried. But one day he comes out of his grave, just like the other guy came out of Elisha's grave. Except when he comes out of his grave, he comes out immortal, never to die again. And on the great day when Elisha comes out of his grave, you and I, by the power of Christ's own resurrection, come out of our graves. We come out more alive then than we are now. 
And we will have life, and we will have life for one reason, and for one reason only. Because we belong to the great prophet, the Lord and giver of life, and the conqueror of the grave. Because we belong to Christ, who himself is light and life. Amen. Let's pray. God, we have come to this portion of your word, to these obscure kings whose names all begin with the same letter and all blur together in our minds, but we see here very clearly that you give life and you give salvation. And as we read through the remainder of the scriptures, we see that you give life and salvation in your son who gave his life and took it back up again that we who are dead, dead in sin might come to life in righteousness and we whose bodies one day lie in a grave might come to life eternal. And so we give you praise for Christ, the great King and conqueror. And we give you thanks that his spirit has been sent into us, that already now we are alive. And we have that hope of the fullness of eternal life. We give you thanks that you are indeed a great God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.